It is my first visit to Jamaica, though I've traveled widely in the Caribbean in other days. I've been to Haiti and the Dominican Republic, to Puerto Rico, to the Cayman Islands, to St. John's and St. Thomas, to St. Martin. But I have to say, there's no place like Jamaica. My sister Phyllis Newby is angling me with a finger to say, there's no place like Jamaica. Of course, there's no place like Haiti either. <laughs> it's been my privilege over the last many years, especially, essentially since I became the speaker of Christians Broadcasting Hope in 1996, to have traveled widely in the Church of God in now almost 60 countries. And you might be interested to know that in so many places, this church, the 100 years and more, the 107 years since the Church of God first came to this island, has had a kind of diaspora that has had a huge and profound impact on the Church of God worldwide. From Toronto to London, to Port-au-Prince, to Washington, D.C. Across the landscape of all the Caribbean, in parts of Europe, and in Canada too, and in the United States, the Church of God in Jamaica has sent some of the brightest and best, greatest and most visionary, disciplined and spiritually grounded leaders that the movement has ever seen. You need to know that. If in the Roman Catholic world, the Irish have defined the church abroad, you might say that in the church of God, Jamaica has defined the church abroad. And you have much for which to be proud. And I can tell you objectively, it is a privilege to be here, to see at last what has given birth to so much great and good in the world over the last 100 years. And as our brother from the missionary church has already observed, a lot has changed in this world in a hundred years. In the 107 years since the church here was first birthed in 1907, and then in the 100 years of this meeting, which has moved almost continuously from that time, the world is vastly different. For when the Church of God came to Jamaica, Nicholas was still the czar of Russia. Victoria had only lately passed away. The Edwardians had been for a brief center stage in the British Empire, but George V had ascended the throne. Woodrow Wilson was president of the United States. And in China, there was still the aging dowager empress in the teetering imperial dynasty that had governed the Middle Kingdom for a millennia. There was no commercial radio or television. No one could have imagined the internet. Cell phones, the stuff of fancy. No one dreamed of going to the moon, and there were no commercial airline flights. People wore dresses that went to their ankles, and no one dared bare the shoulder, male or female. The world has vastly changed, but some things never change. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Nations come and go, empires rise and fall. Science makes all of its advances Knowledge expands, but the fundamental truths that anchor life and eternity do not change. And the Church of God in Jamaica has transcended all of the sweeping changes that this island has known in the years since its founding. And I want you to know that we, the church in other parts of the world, 
and I can speak with clarity for the church in the United States and Canada, as I think I can speak for many of your sister churches abroad elsewhere, I want to say thank you for being faithful, for being true, and for holding on no matter what the sky may bring. We thank you. We thank God for you. We admire you. We learn from you. And we treasure you. And so from your brothers and sisters, in far-flung other places, I bring you greetings tonight in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And as I say that, it is not just a trite phrase. It's not just some kind of omen that we add on to the end of a phrase. When I say, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, I mean to say that Jesus is the subject. And the Church of God, in all of its many expressions across the world, in all of the ways in which it has maneuvered through history, for all of the things that gave it birth, as at a season it is now, to reclaim, to re-elevate, and to re-own in the most profound and precise way that Jesus is the subject. We have been a people long occupied with making the church the subject, and with some good reason in time. But now is a day to understand the church is not the subject, Jesus is the subject. And I may grow weary, and you may grow weary of hearing me say it, but do not allow the diversions and detours of all the other peripherals in church life to take you away from this fundamental truth. We of all people in the broader body of Christ should be able to have the freedom to say Jesus is the subject. That our distinctive is that we are Jesus people. We don't have to bring a whole lot of other baggage to the table in the body of Christ. We who've been called to bring unity to the body of Christ. Unity comes when Jesus is the subject. When Jesus is the center of attention. When he is the defining mentor. When his words, his way, his promises, his commands, and his spirit govern the whole, there will be unity in the body of Christ. And all the other barriers to that unity are the consequence of moving away from the central theme, Jesus. From the beginning of Genesis to the end of Revelation, through both the Old Testament and the New, he is everywhere present. From the beginning of time to the end of time, before time and after time, Jesus is the subject. He is the Lord of Lords. He is the King of Kings. He is the Alpha and Omega. He is the first and the last. He is our friend and at once our Savior. He is our Master. And he is always the subject. And to that end, tonight, as you think about another hundred years, as we think about where we've been and where we might go, not just in the Church of God in Jamaica, but worldwide, where you think about where you might go in the days our Lord has still destined for you to live in this world, I want to bring your attention to a few verses of Scripture in Luke chapter 8, beginning with verse 22. It's a famous story. It's one I'm certain you've heard before, but perhaps not in the same way I will expose it tonight. This is Luke chapter 8, verse 22. I'm reading from what's called the New Living Translation. It is the Word of God, and this is what it says. One day, Jesus said to his disciples, let's cross to the other side of the lake. So they got into a boat and started out. As they sailed across, Jesus settled down for a nap, but soon a fierce storm came down on the lake. The boat was filling with water, and they were in real danger. The disciples went and woke him up, shouting, Master! Master! 
We're all going to drown. And when Jesus woke up, he rebuked the wind and the raging waves. Suddenly the storm stopped and all was calm. Then he asked them, where is your faith? The disciples were terrified and amazed. Who is this man, they asked each other. When he gives a command, even the wind and the waves obey him. So they arrived in the region of the Gerasenes across the lake from Galilee. As Jesus was climbing out of the boat, a man who was possessed by demons came out to meet him. For a long time he had been homeless and naked, living in a cemetery outside the town. And with that, will you pause and pray with me for a moment? Our Father in heaven, we are so thankful for all that we have seen and heard already in this service of worship. But just now we especially give you thanks for your sacred word. For this history of real events in real time, lived by real people. We thank you for your son who is here on the center stage. In this story from Luke's gospel. And we thank you for your Holy Spirit that took this history and preserved it in print that we might learn as well. And I pray that your Holy Spirit, that first inspired these lines, will inspire us, and that he alone will govern the exposition of the text. May you be well pleased, and may all of us move closer into your will and way, for having been here now, in the shadow and in the light of your word. And I ask it in Jesus' name, for his glory alone. Amen. It's a famous story, isn't it? The stilling of the wave, the calming of the storm. It's something that many of us have learned from our earliest memory. We can visualize in some watercolor from a Bible storybook of days gone by of what it must have been like. I want you to, though, think about the first verse that introduces the whole story. Luke chapter 8, verse 22. It seems almost an incidental setup for what really is the meat of the matter. One day, the scripture tells us, just one day like any other day, there was nothing extraordinary about it. There wasn't any marker. It was not an anniversary. It was just one day. Jesus said to his disciples, let's cross to the other side of the lake. And so the verse continues. And so they got in a boat and they started out. Oh, quick, let's, let's move to the real heart of the matter, shall we? About the storm and the power of Jesus. But no, wait. This sentence is every bit as important as anything else that follows. Because you see, when Jesus is the subject, no dot, no comma. No phrase is incidental. Nothing is peripheral. I believe that the Spirit has carefully chosen and preserved for us everything that we read in the Holy Writ. And in this one sentence, there is so much truth for us. The first truth I hope you'll draw from it is this, that when you meet up with Jesus, when you make a decision to be in his company, he will never leave you where you are. You will never be able to stand still and follow Jesus. It is an act of motion. And when you meet Jesus, he is going to take you to places you never have imagined before. And I'm not just talking about geography. I'm talking about ways of thinking, about relationships, about ambitions and dreams. Things that could never otherwise have occurred to you will suddenly occur to you if Jesus is your Lord, your friend, your companion and master. You cannot hold on to what has been and walk with Jesus. You are always going to have to be looking forward. This is not to say that what has been has been somehow flawed. It's just that Jesus is forward-looking. 
Behold, I make all things new. This is the mantra of our Lord. In every place he walked in this world, it was changed. Every person he met was changed. Every movement he launches is in perpetual change. The church of God, I believe, was conceived and breathed by heaven itself. I believe that it was formed for the purposes of our Lord Jesus, who owns the church and to whom we are his bride. I believe all of that, but it's in constant motion. It's in constant direction, and Jesus is always two steps ahead, moving us to places that we never thought we might travel before. When you hook up with Jesus, get ready and pack your bags. And that's very uncomfortable for us because many of us want to meet Jesus and preserve that moment in the garden and never move from there. Oh, Mary, Jesus called on that Easter morn. She wants to hold on to him. And what does Jesus say? Don't hold on to me. I've got places to go, things to go, to do. I'm ascending to the Father. Here's my word for you, Mary. You go and tell those other guys about what you've seen. You see, Jesus is always going to take you from where you are and take you somewhere else. One day, out of nowhere, he's going to say to you, he may say to the church in Jamaica, he may say to your local congregation, one day, when you're just minding your own business, he's going to say, I've got an idea. Let's get in a boat and cross to the other side of the lake. And you're going to say, why do I have to go there? What's the matter with my side of the lake? I like it just fine enough. Why, the picnic tables and the beach, the trees, the mangoes, the fresh produce of Jamaica, why, it's all completely sufficient for me. Why should I cross over to the other side? Does Jesus give them an explanation? Does he tell them why he wants to go there? Do they have any idea why they're going to move out? They have none. He just said, I want to go over there. It's hard for us, isn't it, sometimes to let go of what we've held dear, the predictable, the secure, the comfortable, that which has nourished us and given us life. It's hard to think about stepping out of that comfort zone, out of the shade of that tree, and stand into the blazing hot sun where Jesus may be traveling in a new direction. But folks, if the church of God is to survive as a movement, it must always be ready to move on out. It must always be ready to do things it has not done before. It must always be willing to take the dare, to assume the risk, to go on the adventure of what life is like with Jesus. Cathedrals and stones are the stuff of ancient time and churches that are in the past. Lives changed. People set free. The world upended. The world turned upside down. A new world order. All of this is the stuff of the church of tomorrow. There's always a tomorrow until our Lord returns. When you come into the company of Jesus, be prepared. He will never leave you in the same place. And as he invited the disciples to get into the boat, they began to set sail. Most remarkable, really, because clearly they had understood enough about Jesus that they could trust him to go to a far corner of the lake in a place that they did not necessarily want to go. And so it is with us as we get in the boat with Jesus. I think many of us have done this before. Don't be afraid to try it again. And as they get in the boat, they begin to set sail. But think about who's on the boat, the disciples of Jesus. It's kind of an odd collection of folks, really. I mean, we have some people who are illiterate. They can't read or write. We know that Peter was illiterate. 
We think that Mark's gospel is actually Peter's gospel. It's Peter's story of Jesus, but he couldn't write, so John Mark had to write it down for him. That's the traditional understanding of that, the earliest of our New Testament gospels. We have also someone who was very literate, someone like Matthew. He had to be literate. He was a tax collector, a, a collaborator with the Roman regime that had so oppressed God's people Israel. He had to be very literate to be able to write down in the columns all of the taxes and the names that he collected. You've got Simon the Zealot, who is this political revolutionary. And then you have the fishermen, who are the small businessmen of Galilee. We have this eclectic collection of folks. None of them would probably have chosen the other, save maybe Andrew, his brother, or James and John, the brothers together. But they probably would not have assembled this crew. Jesus put them together. You know, I fly a great deal. Flying today is the equivalent of taking a boat of yesterday. I've been on more miles than I can think to count. One day I was flying to the Billy Graham Training Center at the Cove in North Carolina. It's a spectacular retreat center that the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association has created for the study of God's Word and the preparation of leaders in future time. And it's been my privilege every year, every October for the last few years, to go and speak at the Cove. I'm flying from Indianapolis, where I now live, to Charlotte, North Carolina, to connect to Asheville, where is the Cove. As is my custom, I'm the last person on the plane. It's a dysfunction of mine, and I'm trying to be entirely sanctified about it, but I've got some growing to do. The plane's ready to take off. Every seat is taken, except one, one on the aisle. There are two seats along this side of the aisle, and I run to take my seat, everyone staring at me, knowing that the plane cannot take off until I sit down, I get buckled up, and I'm ready to go. I jump into my seat with a sigh, and I looked at my seatmate, a young woman in her 20s, blonde and quite fair-skinned. She is nestled up against the edge of the plane window. Her eyes are closed as if asleep. Her cheeks are bright red as if fevered, and she has one of those red airline blankets pulled up tight against her chin. I, being filled with the spirit of Jesus and wanting to represent him well at all times, plop into my seat, take one look at her, and think, oh, fine. Now I have to fly with typhoid Mary and be infected by whatever she has. You know what it is on a plane? You're recycling all that air, all those people breathing their germs, and you're going to drink them in. I can't just be satisfied with drinking them in from the air circulating. I have to be seated next to the woman who is the carrier. This is my sad and dark, selfish side that every now and then still comes to life. So she, asleep against the wall, I, afraid of her germs, move to the aisle and lean this way. I pulled out my Time magazine to read as the plane made its progress. It took off and flew for a while. She never moved. And then, to my horror, in a moment, she awakened. And worse, she touched me. <laughs> she reaches over and she takes her hand and touches my forearm here, my bicep. And she nudges me and she goes, do you know about sex? I thought, what? What kind of a question is that? I just, I didn't even acknowledge it. I, I just pretended like I didn't hear it. And she grabbed my forearm again and she said, do you know, she turned her face around towards me, do you know about sex? I thought, it's, it's an absurd question. How could she be bringing that up? I don't even know her. What do I say to something like that? A third time, with entreaty, she said, do you know about sex? 
She seems so anxious. I learned some time ago in the ministry that if you're not sure what to say, you can active listen. You know the process of active listening? The idea is you value the person with whom you're speaking by restating what you think they've said. In this case, it didn't work so well because not knowing what to say and her persistence, I thought, well, all I can do is, is clarify. Is that really what she's saying? But the way I said it sounded very arrogant. If you can imagine, I, I simply said, do, do I know about sex? <laughs> like, you're asking some, you know, James Bond figure, a preposterous. She looks at me and she goes, sex. I went, sex? She said, not sex, snacks. <laughs> I, I want to know. Have they passed out the pretzels and the peanuts and the Coca-Cola, the snacks? S-N-A-C-K-S. Snacks, not sex, you weirdo, perverse man. Oh, I was so completely humiliated. I, I wanted to die. I truly did. I, I wanted the plane to open up and suck me out into the universe so that I would never live again. I was so embarrassed. I, I said, I'm so very sorry. I, I, I don't know how I could have mixed that up. She was, she was furious. And I said, I'm sorry, but the snack cart has already gone down the aisle. She pulled her blanket up and she went back up against the wall. She was all in a huff. I moved over this side, cowering, humiliated, lame. And then to my surprise, she grabs my forearm again. And she looks at me and exactly in this tone and in this way, she goes, can you tell me what time it is? <laughs> Fearful apparently, that I'd misunderstand that question in some kind of odd way. You know, I can laugh about that now, and especially when I imagine how she's telling that story to the people she knows. I'm just glad she didn't ask me what I did and where I was going. Oh, I'm going to speak at the Billy Graham Center. I'm glad she didn't bring that up. But the reason I'm sharing that with you is the truth is I couldn't choose her as her as my seatmate, and she did not choose me. And once on the plane, we had to get to the end together. And guess what? Church life is just like that. You're going to be misunderstood, and somebody else, you will misunderstand. You're going to be offended because what you think they thought isn't what you think they should think. You're going to have some ruffles and flourishes. You're going to have some things that rub you the wrong way. And do not let the devil tempt you to divide the body and walk away. Stay on the plane and work it out. Because Jesus is the one who chooses the passengers. I want us, he said to his disciples, to go to the other side. Yes, you. Yes, you, Matthew. And yes, you, Simon the Zealot. Now, I get it. Matthew, you work for the Romans. And Simon the Zealot, you're all about getting rid of the Romans. I get that. You have that history. Get on the boat. And when you're sailing, don't just sit at opposite ends in a huff and talk to your neighbors about the other one at the other end. You love one another as Jesus loved us. That's how you sail with Jesus. He's going to cause you to move, and when you start moving, when you start going from here to there, when you have to do things that are outside your comfort zone, don't be surprised if he also matches you up to some people you didn't choose for the ride. But in the end, God knows exactly what he's doing. 
And so there they are, settling across the Sea of Galilee, and as they do, there's a storm. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm one of those who has always wanted to believe that if I did the right thing for the right reasons, if I was obedient as I understood to be obedient to my Lord Jesus, then there'd be smooth sailing. Aren't there passages in the Old Testament that suggest to us that if we honor God, then God will honor us? We all understand that we want to be those planting of the Lord, those solid oak trees, the stuff of Psalm 1. But even those trees well planted endure their storms. I'm here to tell you that if you go with Jesus in a boat to some destination that he has called you to visit, don't be surprised if hell itself throws you a storm you'll never forget. Storms are not the evidence of your disobedience. They are more often the evidence of your obedience that hell wants to thwart. The storm came up for the purpose, I believe, of causing the disciples to turn around. The devil knew what was on the other side. The devil could see where they were going. He was up to Jesus' game plan. The disciples were not. If I can just discourage them with the wind and the wave, if I can just get them while Jesus takes a nap to turn the boat around and go back to where they started, if they'll just go back to Egypt, I won't have to worry about them taking the promised land. And that's the way the storms of life often are. An attempt to discourage you and to turn you around. I had the chance to travel into the deep Amazon not long ago. You know, the Amazon is, is a vast inland sea. It's not just a river. It's a sea. At points five to eight miles wide. And as I flew into the mouth of the Amazon and then into a city called Manaus, which is deep in Amazonia, an odd kind of European outpost from the 19th century that was the capital of the rubber barons that has an opera house on a scale of La Scala in Milan, strangely standing out in the midst of a jungle that crowds in from every side. And having landed in Manaus, I got on a boat, a crickety, old, ratchety, wooden boat that looked like a film of the African queen and began to sail up farther, many, many hours, deeper, deeper still into the Amazon. Until at last, I and my four traveling companions from the United States landed at a treehouse. Yes, a treehouse, because in the deep of the Amazonia, the great variety of water levels during the year sometimes exposes land, but many times buries all the land, so many of the people live in trees. And our boat came to a treehouse where we got off the boat and climbed up a ladder up into a tree. And there lived in a phenomenal treehouse that had been constructed for people who might come to visit. A little bit like the old Robert Louis Stevenson book, Swiss Family Robinson, if you're familiar with the tale. In fact, I was very impressed when I got to the treehouse thinking this is way out of my comfort zone. And they had a white porcelain toilet in the treehouse 40 feet above the Amazon. I thought, that's amazing. Here we are in the middle of nowhere, and they actually have a toilet. And when I pulled the lid up, I saw that it was just a hole that went down 40 feet into the Amazon. I guess just having that porcelain made it feel a little bit more civilized, like home. We lived in the tree for that night. And then the next day, it was our ambition to get in a canoe and go farther still to a village where the gospel had only shortly come. That was our destination. 
The canoe was to be manned by two Brazilians who spoke Portuguese and no English, one at each end of the canoe with a paddle, and the five of us Americans in the middle in a row. As we set sail from the tree, the sun was bright and the sky was blue. We actually sang the theme song to a ridiculous old television comedy in the United States, I don't know if you've ever seen it here, called Gilligan's Island. We were wearing our tank tops and cargo shorts and baseball caps on the adventure of a lifetime. National Geographic for Jesus. We were having a grand time as we sailed across the open sea that was the Amazon at that moment. But as you understand in the tropics, the weather can change quite suddenly. And as we were out in this open water, and the Amazon water itself was like bath water. I don't know what its temperature was, but it had to be in the 80 degrees Fahrenheit. And as we were out there in the middle, the sky grew dark, and the big puffy white clouds turned ominous. And then there was the sound of thunder and lightning, and then a wind came up, and there was a surf that sought to overtake the canoe. Literally, white caps that began to buffet the boat. The, the canoemen, the Brazilians, began to angle the canoe to sail straight into the wave, knowing that if the waves hit the canoe broadside, it would capsize. It became very, very desperate in a very short time. One of the men on the journey is a guy named Obadiah Smith. Obadiah has a song in his heart. And he started to sing. I don't know what provoked him, but while we're looking at the storm and, and we're getting quite anxious and water is beginning to bail into the boat, it's, it's overtaking the boat and our canoe is, is filling up with water. We're seated on little benches that are now putting our rear ends in the water inside the canoe. Obadiah begins to sing a hymn that my grandmother loved and used to sing. It goes like this. I was sinking deep in sin, far from the peaceful shore. Very deeply stained within, sinking to rise no more. But the master of the sea heard my despairing cry. From the waters lifted me, now safe am I. Love lifted me, love lifted me. When nothing else could help, love lifted me. Love lifted me. Love lifted me when nothing else could help. Brother Gordon, I'm you. Love lifted me. Oh, you're good. You know, that sounded so great here now, but on that boat I said, Obadiah, can't you sing anything else? And then the Brazilians began to gesture at us animatedly. I did not know what they were saying. They perceived I was the leader of the group. They kept gesturing to me. What? 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 I said, I don't know what. And one of them reached and took the cap off my head, the baseball cap off my head. And he dipped it into the water, filling the canoe, and began to bail the water out with my baseball cap. And then he plopped it on my head, and then he pointed to every one of us, and we got the message. And we started bailing the boat with our baseball caps. The wind is howling. The wave is raging. I'm looking and trying to find the shore. I can see it in the far distance. I can swim, but I'm not sure I can swim that far in a storm. Oh, and did I tell you? There are schools of carnivorous piranhas circling the boat and carnivorous reptiles like crocodile or alligator, whatever lives down there, but the ones with the big mouth and all those teeth, they're all hovering around. I'm thinking, I might be able to swim, but could I make it and outrun? Whatever's after me. I mean, it was terrifying, really. I thought, 
in a sudden moment, a storm has come up. I'm doing the right thing for the right reasons in my view. I've gone on this trip because the Lord called me. What is going on? And I called out to the men on the boat and I said, all right, guys, here's what we're going to do. We're going to say the Lord's Prayer in unison together in Shakespearean English, the way we all learned it from the King James. And they looked at me like, we don't do that. I said, you are going to do that. We're going to die. You're saying the Lord's Prayer with me. And I'm not being facetious. When you find yourself in a storm and you don't know what else to do, pray the prayer our Lord gave us. It covers all the bases of life. It puts everything in perspective. You'll know who's your father in heaven. You'll know about his will to be done. You'll ask for what you need, and you'll make sure your heart is clean in forgiveness as you're forgiving others. And I promise you, in that moment, I'm thinking about everybody I haven't forgiven because I don't want to go to the bottom of the Amazon with any unforgiveness on my heart. And when you get to the part that says, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever, I promise you, in a storm, that matters. And as we said that prayer out loud over the howling wind and wave, I am not kidding you. When we said amen, the storm stopped. I'm here to tell the story. The storm stopped. The waves were calm. We, with our jaws dropped open, amazed at the goodness of God and the power of the prayer. Sailed on to the village, had a great witness there, came back, and on our way back at the cool of the day, by the evening light, I must say, to turn a phrase, we stopped the canoe, and it was so still. The water was so still like a mirror of glass in which you could see your face reflected. And we took off our shirts and jumped into the water and swam around the canoe as the sun began to set. Friends, if you are sailing with Jesus, don't let the storm turn you back. God is able. And you may have a crisis in your home. You may have a crisis in your body. You may have a crisis in relationship. You may have a financial crisis. There could be a political crisis on the island. There could be 101 ways in which the devil himself will try to intervene. But do not be frightened. Do not be intimidated. Pray, and God is with you, and you will find your way sailing through the storm, and he will evaporate like the Wizard of Oz, all the smoke and mirrors that he really is. And then they get to the other side. Can you imagine their frame of reference, these disciples like you and me? You know what? I really was happy where I was before. Why do we have to make the trip? Now that I'm on the trip, I'm with all these people. I'm not sure I'd have chosen. Okay, I get it. I'm making peace with them. And now I've sailed through a storm where I thought I was going to die, and God has demonstrated that he is the master of all. So far, so good. But boy, I'll be glad to get to the other side and take a deep breath and get to that wonderful restaurant where I can have some candied plantain, which I've tasted here. Or maybe some fresh mango from Jamaica. Or maybe something else I discovered, some jerk chicken. I'm thinking where I'm going to land and how I'm going to be refreshed and having been obedient after all that. But what happens when the boat gets there? As soon as the boat pulls up to the shore, a madman without any clothes comes out of the cemetery, cutting himself and working all kinds of havoc. He's supernaturally empowered by the demons inside of him that even though he be chained with iron, he breaks them free and creates all kinds of fear and terror in the community. This is the welcoming committee. 
Does Jesus know what he's doing? Do you know that the church of God, with great boldness and daring, sent people to Russia and to the former Soviet republics when the Iron Curtain fell? You need to know right now, as you read about Ukraine in the headlines, we have a whole collection of churches in the eastern Ukraine which are right on the front lines of today's news. These are good and godly people who in the last 20 years have come to the gospel for the first time ever. And deep into Russia, in a city called Shalabansk in Siberia, a city of one and a half million, in the mid-1990s, the Church of God sent teams of people, 10 or 12 at a time, who went to teach people English. They were wanting to learn English, and we taught them English using the Bible as a textbook. The people in Chalabans were altogether atheists because over 70 years of communist rule had taught them that science was God and there was no other. Chalabans was the seat of the Soviet nuclear arsenal. Five universities still in play there, experts in all of the hard sciences in mathematics and chemistry and physics. One of the best educated populations on the planet in Chalabans, Russia, a city of one half million, but a city without any gospel witness. All of it had been driven away over those 70 years, save for a tiny handful of Baptists underground. And as we went there, we have found open hearts. And today I want you to know, we have three congregations of hundreds of believers, each pastored by four native Russian pastors, all of them in the pew and in the pulpit, atheists 20 years ago. And they are a New Testament church of the first magnitude. It is the Acts of the Apostles in an extraordinary way. The local church I pastored for 22 years was at the front end of that missionary enterprise. And over the years, we've maintained a deep and, and profound commitment and relationship with the believers in Chalabans. And in that role then as pastor, and now as general director, I just came back from there in February last, it's been my privilege to become well acquainted in Chalabans. And on my first visit there, I met the believers in the city, and they said, we want to take you out of town on the train to a little village called Saristan. It's deep in the Ural Mountains, where the trees grow tall and the whitewater rivers rush to the uh, main rivers that run to the sea. It's a world apart from urban Russia. It's old Russia, where people live in cabins without indoor plumbing. I agreed. We took the train for four or five hours out of Shalabans, climbing into the mountains. And then we came to a stop that was nothing more than a, a wood shack and a wooden platform. The train stopped and we got off. I and some traveling companions, my translator, who spoke English and Russian. The train steamed off, and there we were, standing at the front of a muddy road that led up a hill where there were tiny little cabins, all the same, made of logs, but differentiated by brightly painted pastel shutters. The shutters are the addresses. The people with the pink pastel shutters and the tulip pattern, well, we all know those are the Romanovs. And the people with the yellow shutters, it's the address, it's the family markers. I was looking for Hansel and Gretel and the gingerbread cottage. That's how it looked. I was brought to a place, a little lodge in the middle of the village that was owned by a man named Drunken Volodia. Drunken Volodia was so named to differentiate him from sober Volodia, who also lived in the town. Drunken Volodia had three rooms in his lodge, a bunk room for women, a bunk room for men, and a single common room with a long wooden table upon which he served onions, tomatoes, and boiled eggs for every meal. As I was welcomed by Drunken Volodia, who seemed quasi-sober at the time, 
the villagers came to meet me because not very often do outsiders and from people of the United States come. It was kind of a novelty. The gospel was just coming to Saristan. They'd been lost in time for these 70 years. And not only were the believers from Chalabans going out to teach them about the gospel, but here was an American. So the whole village, they didn't have any TVs. They didn't know what else to do. So they came to Drunken Velodius to stare and gawk. And while I sat at the table, my translator said, the men want you to go to the banya with them. I said, the banya? What's the banya? He said, well, it's kind of like a sauna. I said, all right, is it appropriate for me to go to the banya? Is that something I should do? He said, well, if, if you're willing to take the chance, I thought an odd phrase, if you're willing to take the chance to go to the, the banya, it could be very meaningful for the villagers. I said, well, if you think it's appropriate, I'm all right with going to the sauna. I could do that. And so then he explained that to the villagers, and they were all excited. And so we walked out of Drunken Velodius on a little tiny path into the woods. And there, as we got into the woods, there was another cabin. And on top of the cabin, this was a freezing cold night where there was ice on the ground. Crystal clear sky was stars, but it was frigid cold. As I approached the cabin, there was a man on the roof of this little cabin. And he was wearing no clothes except a loincloth. He had rippling muscles, and his name was Igor. If I was doing casting for a James Bond movie to find people to play the bad guys, it would have been him. And he was on the roof because another man was down here taking chunks of wood, huge chunks of wood, and physically throwing them up on the roof like a football. The physicality of it was amazing. And he would pitch that up, and the man on the roof would catch it and then stuff it down the chimney. And when he stuffed it down the chimney, sparks would fly out. I thought, well, this is a sauna I'll remember. So we got into the first room, the villagers and I and my translator, and I was told, this is where you take all of your clothes off. I said, all of my clothes? All of them? Are you serious? All of my clothes? I, how about... How about a swimsuit? No, we all take all of our clothes off, and they all disrobed. And I thought, well, all right. So then there was a second room out of that door, and in that room was all these village men sitting, nobody clothed, all these naked men sitting there. And then I walked in. How do you do? My name is Jim. What do you say? I thought, this is strange, but all right. But then they said, this is not the banya. The banya is in here, and another door opened. So then we went in there, and there was a more traditional sauna-like space with benches built in tiers. And there was this huge oven where the man had been stuffing the wood from the chimney down. It was heating up rocks that literally glowed in the dark, red hot. I asked how hot it was, and I was told 240 degrees Fahrenheit. You know, at 212 degrees Fahrenheit, I'm not sure what it is in Celsius, but <laughs> that's boiling. The men got on these benches, and, and laid down on their stomachs. And then Igor and some other men came in and started to have branches, like birch tree branches. And they carried them in. I thought it was strange. And then they dipped them in boiling hot water and began to sprinkle hot water on our backs as we laid on these benches. I thought, you know, this is creeping me out. But then they started to tickle our backs with the branches. I thought, what in the world is going on in the banya? Has drunken Velodia taken over the world? But there was more. The tickling then became a beating. They started taking those branches like switches and beating us 
Womp, 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 from head to toe. Womp, womp, all up and down our back, everywhere. Bop, 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 beating us. I'm thinking, what is going on? And the poor guys who are doing the beating or working of a sweat, imagine. I realized, oh, this is kind of like drinking somebody under the table. We're going to see who can last the longest. And one by one, the villagers began to peel out. And I thought, no, I, the American, will not surrender first. I would persevere. And in the end, everyone left except me and Igor. I thought, when will this be over? Then Igor started to talk to me in Russian. I didn't know what he was saying. I said, what, what? And then he took his arms and slipped them underneath my abdomen as if to turn me over on my back. And I said, we are not doing this sunny side up. You are not going to beat me as I'm laying on my back. It's just not happening. And I jumped up. And as I did, he realized I was going to run out. So he grabbed my arm and pulled me out all through the other rooms and threw me outside in the frigid cold with no clothes on from the 240 degrees to 30 below zero. And then as I stood out there thinking, what is going on? What's happening to me? Men on the roof doused me with ice-cold buckets of water just flooding me. And I was shaking my head off. They grabbed me back in and put me in the second middle room. And then the villagers began to talk to me for five hours until 4 a.m. in the morning about their lives. Do you really believe there is a God? What do you think about astrology? Is there some truth to that stars govern our lives? My wife has left me. I don't know why. My son has a drinking problem. You know, I lived and spent my whole life as a communist, and it provided a moral and ethical value system for me, but all of that's gone now. I have nothing. I don't have anything to live for. Do you have something to tell me that I could live for? The kind of naked intimacy of heart disclosure that happened in that banya still takes my breath away. And what I learned is, that the banya is the traditional Russian bathhouse, and that Russian people, the peasants, never could afford soap, and the birch tree bark has a kind of astringent that's a scrub, and so every village has a banya, and the men would go on one night of the week, and it became a social meeting place, and they would scrub down with the birch bark, but then, as you know, guys might do and start playing around and horseplay and so on and so forth, and over the centuries has become this custom of, of beating each other with the branches and kind of good-natured camaraderie and bonding till you get to the end and then you talk about real life. Why am I telling you that story? Because if I had known what was waiting for me in Saristan, I would have never gotten on the train. Do you get that? Anybody here want to sign up and go with me on my next trip? Truth be told, the board of elders of the Shalabans Church of God meets every month in a banya. And I was there February. I go every time. But if I'd known at the beginning what it was like, if I'd known what I would have to do, the challenges out of my comfort zone, I would never have gone. In the same way, if those disciples had had it explained to them, when you get to the other side of the lake and survive the storm and go through the whole company of all these people you don't really like and get to the other side, then you're going to meet a madman who's out there with supernatural human physical power, you wouldn't get on the boat in the first place. But truth be told, because they were obedient and willing to take the dare, what happens on the other side of the lake? A man is set free. Hell is stared down. The demons cry out, what do you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? And Jesus speaks right into the gnawing mouth of hell and says, who are you? What's your name? And the demons say, 
Our name is Legion for we're many. And he took those demons, all of the legion of demons that had enslaved that man and terrorized the whole community, and he reached in by the power of his word, and he pulled them out and set that man free and set the village free, though they didn't appreciate it. And the world was changed. Because remember, Jesus says, Behold, I make all things new. I believe that before they set sail, Jesus knew exactly what was going to happen over there. That's why the journey took place. And the lesson for us all is none of us can know what Jesus has in mind at the next stop. But we better be willing to move with him to get there. The church of God in this island could never have imagined how it would touch the world when it began in 1907. Nobody who was a pioneer in the early 20th century coming here would have imagined that this place, this island, would send great voices around the world to preach the gospel in the way it has. Nobody could know from Tottenham in London to the heart of New York City to some of the great congregations of the United States to the very vibrant city of Toronto to Haiti itself to the Cayman Islands, to so many places where people have been redeemed and found life in Jesus' name. Why? Because somebody was willing to set sail. And you cannot know what will happen in the next 100 years. You cannot know what's going to happen in the next year. But make it your ambition to sail with Jesus. Do not make it your ambition to simply stay where you are, preserve what you have, and make sure it survives. Because that's a sure and certain prescription to see it lost. But if you're willing to keep moving with Jesus, keep reaching for that new shore, to be willing to take the risk, to not be turned back by the difficulties along the way, while you too may become an instrument in the hand of God in setting free of souls and communities, whole nations can be redeemed. Ladies and gentlemen, it is a sacred privilege. It is a high calling, and it is a very tall responsibility to be called into the church of God. Oh, but what a life, and oh, what good can be done. And for all there is to celebrate in the last hundred years of this movement on this island, how much more, how much more greater things than these wait still as you are willing to hear the voice of Jesus say, just one day, this year, you know, I'd like to cross to the other side of the island. I'd like to cross to the other side of the street. I'd like to cross to the others who are working with me in the missionary church. I'd like to cross into some place where you haven't been before and may not feel comfortable at first. But if you'll get in the boat and start out, great is the glory that you'll see in Jesus. Our Father, I pray your blessing on this people. And I pray that each of us tonight in this room might be ourselves recommissioned to set sail with Jesus for a new day. In his name we ask it. Amen.